Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. Lal has a positronic brain, one very similar to my own. I began programming it at the cybernetics conference. But nobody's ever been able to do that data. At least not since you were programmed. Data? I would like to have been consulted. I have not observed anyone else on board consulting you about their procreation, Captain. Commander Data, at your convenience, I would like to talk with you in my ready room. Counselor. I insist we do whatever we can to discourage the perception of this new android as a child. It is not a child. It is an invention, albeit an extraordinary one. Why should biology rather than technology determine whether it's a child? Data has created an offspring, a new life out of his own being. To me, that suggests a child. If he wishes to call Lal his child, then who are we to argue? Well, if he must. But I fail to understand how a five-foot android with heuristic learning systems and the strength of ten men can be called a child. You've never been a parent. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That clip you just heard is from an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Offspring, in which the android, Lieutenant Commander Data, tries his hand at procreation by programming and constructing a daughter that he names Lal. It's one of the more philosophical and moving episodes of Star Trek, and it explores a recurring theme— Data's quest to become more human. Ironically, the actor who portrays Data, Brent Spiner, has become so identified in people's minds with the iconic android that he, too, has been grappling with what it means to be human, to be seen for the person he is, not the character he played for seven seasons, four movies, and most recently, in Star Trek Picard. It's a subject he explores in his new book, Fan Fiction, a memoir inspired by true events. It's a fictional noir thriller set during the early 90s, when Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, Patrick Stewart, and the rest of the TNG cast were rocketing to sci-fi fame. The plot kicks off when Brent Spiner receives a death threat from an obsessed fan who identifies as his android daughter, Lau. As someone who's received a number of death threats over the years, and who knows what it's like to contend with a fictional doppelganger version of yourself out there in the world, I was hooked. Whether you're a fan of Star Trek or not, if you have any online existence, you too will be implicated by the questions Brent Spiner explores about the nature of identity, celebrity, and how we form our self-conception in relation to the avatars that represent us and that we inhabit. And if you're a fan, well, you're in good company. Amanda, I saw that photo of you in a Star Trek uniform that you posted. So mm-hmm. obviously you're, let's be blunt, you're a nerd. Yeah, okay. So Chris <laughs> wanted to take out our tricorder here. so We, could... we just wanted to see if, are you actually human? <laughs> yeah. Are you getting a reading? Non-android. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Do you have that in common, Chris, with Amanda? Are are you a Trek fan? Yeah, that was actually our first costume date. It was my brother's 30th birthday party, and he was having a Viking-themed birthday party. (laughs) And everyone was supposed to show up in Viking gear. 
they had a big roast pig and they and had mead, mead and, and all of that. Yeah. And we decided oh to God. put on some Starfleet uniforms and pretend that we were visiting a primitive planet. Good idea. Good idea. You were going back in time. and yeah, Or something excellent. like that. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, he loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked out. I, I'll bet. Yeah, we're big nerds. We're big fans. Don't feel threatened. <laughs> no, no. I, I'm not. Thank you so much. Well, I'm a fan too. And yeah, I love that photo though. It was just great. <laughs> so we loved your book. We're so excited to talk to you about it. One thing super resonated with me, and that was your using this really fun story to discuss identity and the duality of identity and the idea of you versus the real you and right. how that translates in the world of celebrity and fandom. What made you want to write about that aspect of your experience? I'll tell you what, I really didn't particularly want to write about it, but <laughs> I was approached by a, a literary agent and asked if I would write a memoir. And that really didn't interest me. And I have very little to talk about. The most interesting things about me, you already know. And it's, I think, my work, and that's about it. But he kept coming back and, and coming back. And, and so I said, well, I've had this story in my mind for a while. And it is something I grapple with on a daily basis. I'm sure you do too. Any of us who are on social media and have a profile prior to going on social media have this tidal wave of humanity coming at you, some of whom accept very readily who you are, and then there's a select group who would rather you be somebody else. Hmm. And particularly in my case, having played this character for so long and been associated with it for so long, I think there's a confusion that I am he. And not so much that he is real, although sometimes that happens, <laughs> but primarily that I am he. And, and that's, I'm afraid, an illusion because he's far greater than I am. Hmm. And, but I think that's, in a lot of ways, what people want me to be. Hmm. And they're disappointed, I think, at times to find that out. And so I thought meditating on all of that stuff and on celebrity and on fandom and on fear, fear of everything and including fear of adoration on a certain level inspired me. Totally. Yeah, there was one passage in particular. There's a moment where the avatar of you in the book, anyway, your sort of fan fictional Brent Spiner, right. is giving a eulogy at this funeral. Mm -hmm. And the text says, she saw me on her TV and I became a friend to her, but all her feelings for me were the result of an illusion. I wasn't her friend. Mm -hmm. I didn't know her. And all the qualities she loved about me, they're not real. And that ends with, this is the mirage called acting surrounded by another mirage called celebrity. Yes. Some passages like that one really jumped out at us as like, all right, whatever is fictional or invented here in this book, some things feel very real. And that felt very real to us. Yeah, I try to say up front that nothing is actually real, but things are inspired by real things. In as you mentioned, I'm not even real <laughs> in the book. It's not really me. Certainly not me now. <laughs> Maybe it's closer to who I was 30 some odd years ago. But yes, there are things that are real and feelings that are real and thoughts that are real mm -hmm. that have woven their way through this. Primarily, I wanted to write something that was entertaining. That was my goal. And when I told the agent my story, I said, that's who I am. If you want to know who I am, I'm somebody who likes to 
entertain mm. and amuse people. Mm-hmm. And so I would prefer to do that with the book, although there are some serious things that pop into the book, despite me even. Yeah, well, and I've written a memoir, too, and it's a very different kind of experience. The reason why I wrote my memoir is because I felt like there was an idea of me out there in the world that wasn't really me Mm -hmm. and that there were tons of people who were deciding and authoring my experience and my identity. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had just one chance to give voice to my own experience and at least be one voice out there. Right. And I wonder if was this a little bit like you writing your own episode instead of doing the lines that someone else wrote? You know, in a way, it was like writing a comedy that starred me as myself. Hmm. Basically, it is a comedy, although, as you mentioned, there are some serious things in it. But there are serious things in every comedy, I think, or most. And there's comedy in most serious things, probably all serious things, actually. You know, it's interesting, Amanda, I was thinking about this in relationship to you in particular, that there might be people who feel the way you did about this Matt Damon film that was recently out that they usurped your life and used it for their own purposes. And no one in the book is actually really real. I mean, my friends who are characters in the book, I made sure that they read the book before I <laughs> I finalized it, and that they were okay with what I said about them. I think there are other people who will say, that's me, and <laughs> they're not really anybody. Mm-hmm. They're a, maybe a conglomerate of people and ideas and other and fictional things and all combined into one thing. But I, I, I don't think it was quite the same. But it did give me pause to think about it because one hopefully owns oneself. And you don't want to take advantage of that. Yeah. I honestly took great, great joy in reading your your memoir, because how fun, (laughs) how fun to just be like, I own myself so much that I don't have to give you a memoir. I can give you a memoir because that's what I want to do. That's amazing. I love that. Exactly. (laughs) And I don't even have to really be me. There was some joy I had in, frankly, being young again, Hmm. 30 years younger and living my life again. A life that never happened, actually. And, uh, <laughs> you mean you didn't have any threesomes with twins? Come on. <laughs> no, that no. Wait a minute. Oh, well, I, I can't go into that here, but but not those twins. Yeah. But there are people in the book that are real. There are things that happen that if I had to point out what's real and what's not, which I really don't want to do too much of. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said, none of it's really real. But, like, Ronald Reagan did come to the set. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought that was one of the more fantastical elements. (laughs) Well, exactly. What was discussed in the scene in the book isn't what he talked about when he was there. But he did come to the set. And Gene Roddenberry was there at the time. Dr. Sachs, uh, Oliver Sachs, came popping into my trailer one day. And we didn't go over that exact dialogue that happens in the book. I didn't even know who he was, actually. Mm. When he came in, he, he just dropped in and said, could I come in for a minute? And and he maybe gave me just a drop of what I'd used in the book, which was to say that that Data had been the uh, poster boy for his work. And I, I really didn't know what he meant at the time because I didn't know what his work was. Mm. And subsequently, of course, I know quite well. So there are things like that that are real, but Again, never really real. Oliver Sacks, the famed neurologist, had explained to Spiner that many of his patients who had autism and Asperger's syndrome and who struggled with social interaction saw Data as a role model, 
a hero. High praise, but, of course, praise for the character isn't the same as praise for the actor. Or is it? What feels real emotionally is the way that you're grappling with having a doppelganger and having people in the world want you to be him. Or and mistake you mistake for, you for you him. him. And so many characters in mm-hmm. the book watch the show, and pretty much every character yeah. is a fan of some kind. Yeah. And you actually, as you're reading it, you're sort of waiting for the character to <laughs> reveal themselves as yet another fan <laughs> and then exactly. potential threat. <laughs> it's great. Exactly. I think some people who pre-read the book felt that I was being egotistical in the book. And I think it's that element that makes them feel that. Hmm. But it was just used for comic effect that everybody watches the show and everybody loved Data. That was <laughs> just something to, to have fun with. Well, I <laughs> I think it's also part of the very serious stuff you get at in there about the nature of celebrity and fame and adoration and wanting to be loved but not wanting the responsibility of loving everyone back. That I, I've thought about quite a bit, and it is difficult. I've always said acting is the territory of the walking wounded. I don't know if that's always true. I'm sure there's some healthy actors out there. <laughs> but for the most part, everybody has this need for a massive approval. And yet, the ability to approve of everybody else is very difficult. And I find that on social media and so on that you're not giving me enough or I'm not getting, hey, I I give you attention. Why can't you give me attention? Yeah, I understand. It's a really fine line. And also, I've, I've talked about, first of all, I tried in the book to make everyone a fan, including myself, because everyone I know is a fan. Everyone. I think fandom and fear are the two common denominators. I think there's something that everyone experiences. And in the case of the book, personally, it's the fandom that awakens fear that goes all the way back to my childhood. Mm. So that's how those two things came together for me. Spiner has clearly thought a lot about fandom and identity and his choice to base the plot of his mem-noir around the fear of being killed by an obsessive fan who claims to be his android daughter is telling. At the end of that episode, The Offspring, Lal starts to feel emotions, something her android progenitor never could. The first emotion she feels is fear. The second, as she's facing her own death, is love. I love you, Father. I will feel it for both of us. That dynamic could also describe the nature of the parasocial relationships we all form with celebrities, public figures, and characters. They can't return the love we feel for them, so we feel it twice as hard. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. 
I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost. And I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years. And I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Life was a song. You came along. I laid awake the whole night through. If I but dared to think you cared, this is what I'd say to you. you That's from an album called Dreamland that Brent Spiner did with cabaret sensation Maud Magar. It's part musical, part noir, and a throwback to the golden era of radio. And it reveals a part of Spiner that's much more rat pack than android. Given that you have this deep interest in comedy and in showmanship and the Mm -hmm. Sinatra side of you, to then have entered into this iconic role where all those emotions suppressed, right? Right. What is it like for you, given that the real Brent in some capacity much more wants to be out there with that martini serenading the audience? (laughs) Yeah, does it feel like you're acting with your hands in your pockets? To a degree, except I can remember we had a, a director in about the third episode of the series who said to me, you are gonna lose your mind if you have to play this character for seven years. Because you're so limited. And I thought about it and I thought, I don't see it that way. I'm imagining that this character is going to be completely unlimited. Hmm. And happily, the writers and producers sort of felt that way too. So they allowed Data to try on all of these different aspects of humanity and explore them. I don't know if I ever, well, I did sing. I sang in at the Riker's wedding. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I well, it was me singing. <laughs> I mean, it was my voice, but but yeah, no, Data sang. But Data also got to be Sherlock Holmes and the Three Musketeers and play Shakespeare and Robin Hood. And, and he got to grapple with stand-up comedy and all kinds of aspects of humanity. Hmm. So it became completely unlimited as long as the writers could keep coming up with stuff and I could accomplish it. And they gave me some great challenges. So it didn't really feel like my hands were in my pockets. I felt like, come on, just keep throwing it at me because it's really fun and it's creating a fun character. So I've been looking at Amanda's journey from a very close point of view, watching her try to become more human in people's eyes because Mm -hmm. for a long time, there's been this character, Foxy Noxy, out there that people got to know It's a mirage, right? It's not the real Amanda. Right. And a a big part of her journey has been like putting her humanity out there and saying, no, hey, look, here's a real me. It's different than that character you know. Mm. And it strikes us that Data's journey in the show Mm -hmm. is to become more human. And we're wondering if you feel some kinship with that journey personally in terms of the real Brent versus the idea of Brent Mm -hmm. and how you've dealt with that that metaphysical issue. I know exactly what you mean. And I think in a way, it's almost the flip side of Amanda's story, because as I said, Data is so much purer a creature than I am. Hmm. It's me feeling free to let people know I am not this perfect creature, as opposed to I'm not a terrible 
human being. I'm actually a, a, a kind feeling hmm. person. And it's not that I'm a terrible guy. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. We saw Brentwood. Maybe we should talk about Brentwood. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Yeah, exactly. They want me back because I'm great. Now I don't have to stay home and masturbate. They want me back because I'm grand. I'm too fucking talented. You understand? Always leave them. That's from a hilarious short film called Brentwood, directed by Sharon Everett, in which Spiner plays a twisted version of himself, who is narcissistic, quick to anger, and deeply envious of his former co star, LeVar Burton. Please do not make a scene with LeVar tonight. What he, Let it go. What he did was unforgivable. What? It's unforgivable not to open your evite? Seven evites. I'm going to send him an eighth. You are cordially invited to go fuck yourself, Burton. Okay, well, I'm going to get drunk tonight. Yeah, that's, that's another me that I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> but I have this series of, of things I've done where I play me, and none of them are actually me, obviously. Sure. Uh, in fact, this isn't even me. <laughs> <laughs> Take the friendships that exist between the characters there. Mm -hmm. Say you and LeVar, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. in that Brentwood short film, you dramatized yeah. a fictionalized version of a relationship between you and LeVar, Correct. which is very different from the relationship. That's more fist clenching. Yeah. <laughs> he is my enemy, <laughs> my nemesis. Which yeah. is the polar opposite of Jordy and Data. Right. And of course, in the real world, there's some relationship you develop after years of working with people that I'm assuming you're, you don't hate each other. <laughs> no, actually. no, we're, we're, we're actually really good friends. And in fact, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that we're all still really good friends. We became good friends doing the show, and we still know each other quite well and are really close. And in fact, in the audio book that I did of fan fiction, everybody came in and voiced themselves. Oh, oh great. Fantastic. Which was really nice. And it, it really elevated the project, I think, to hear them. I want to listen to that. Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. You spoke to LeVar already, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was, was I more philosophical or was he? <laughs> <laughs> he talked about his, like, priest days. Like, he, he got yeah. spiritual in the end. Yeah. Well, he is he is that. There was no incense or anything when he was there, was there? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. There were no crystals. Yeah. We <laughs> okay. Have you ever seen the web series I did, Fresh Hell? No. No. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah, it's fun. And again, I play myself in it. And the premise of it is basically I've done something horrible that we call the incident. And all of show business and all of humanity basically detests me. That is amazing. And I can't get a job. And, and LeVar does an episode of that, too, that is a killer episode. It's, it's maybe the best episode of the whole thing. Oh, fun. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I also love that you're like, I'm not Data. Look, everyone hates me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, it's difficult. To let people know who you are uh, and that you're real without putting them off. I have this inadvertent thing I do. When somebody calls me data out in the world, if I'm getting my luggage at the end of a flight and I hear someone go, data, I, I have this inadvertent eye roll that I oh. do because not that I have any problem with data. I love data and I'm so proud to have played data, but 
I am not data. That is not my name. That is not who I am. Not that I want to be unkind to them, but I just want them to know that I, I exist because I've spent way, way more of my life being Brent than I have being Data. And it negates the rest of my life mm. if if one thinks that's who I am or even calls me that yeah. personally. Yeah, it erases you. It does. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Which I, I think you probably understand. And, you know, it's funny. There are so many actors who... I mean, I think somebody like Henry Fonda, who always played these upstanding characters and someone that you could depend on and was morally pure, was apparently not that nice a guy in real life. Hmm. And people I admired so much growing up, people like Spencer Tracy, he was nightmarish, particularly when he was drinking heavily. Hmm. He was really, really maybe the most difficult human being who was ever an actor in Hollywood. Wow. And you would never know that Father Flanagan could prove to be that. Right. And so I'm not saying that I'm terrible, but I do have negative human qualities <laughs> that Data didn't have. When you inhabit a character for a long time, obviously things that are authentic to you must creep into the character. Mm -hmm. But I imagine it's a two-way street and that things that are a part of the character must creep into you. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about when you inhabit that mind state of Data, when you did that, does that rub off on you in any way? Has it affected you to step into that mind? I don't know. I hope so, because data is pure and, and decent, and I can only hope that some of him has rubbed off on me. Mm. I know a lot of me has rubbed off on him. Mm. But it's funny, again, speaking about social networks, if I say something or I write something, I'll get responses like, I heard Data's voice when you said that. And I think, yeah, because it, it is my voice. <laughs> <laughs> I was Data, you see, so it makes sense. <laughs> uh, there's no question Data sounded a lot like me and looked a lot like me, albeit he didn't use contractions. And I do. I just actually ran across this story this morning where I didn't know if you knew that there is an android on Earth right now who has been granted citizenship what? in Saudi Arabia in 2017. It's a woman. Huh? And one of the big controversies is that maybe she has more rights over there than actual women do. But then the sort of big headline that I saw was that she has now vocalized that she wants to have a child. Hmm. She wants to have a robot child. And I was just wow. like, wow. And she says that she's still too young because she was only invented in 2016. But <laughs> that <laughs> she has goals to one day be a mother. Life imitates art, I guess, here. And how about William Shatner going into space? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he's 90 years old. He is really the only person I know who would eagerly do that because he devours information and life and the world. And I think that's why he comes off so young. He is still voraciously reading and, and uh, devouring information. He loves it. Hmm. And hmm. so for him, it's a no-brainer. When William Shatner returned from his first space flight, he had this to say. Oh, I can't even begin to express what this air, which is keeping us alive, is, is 
thinner than your skin. In, a, in an instant, you go, wow, that's death. That's what I saw. That's amazing. I am overwhelmed. I had no idea. For sure. Everybody, it, it, it would be so important for everybody to have that experience. For me, I have no interest in going to space. <laughs> really? I really don't. No, I have. I, I don't like heights at all. And I, I, honestly, I don't even like standing if I can help it. I, I prefer to lay down if that's possible. <laughs> I, I'm doing this thing to a panel with a moderator, and they're going to show Measure of a Man, that episode of uh, Next Generation. Uh-huh. And then they want to talk to me about it. Measure of a Man is a classic episode which explores the moral status of artificial intelligence, with Data's ability to determine his own fate hanging in the balance. When a Starfleet researcher wants to study him, Captain Picard is forced to defend Data's rights in a legal hearing. Commander, is your contention that Lieutenant Commander Data is not a sentient being and therefore not entitled to all the rights reserved for all life forms within this Federation? Data is not sentient, no. Commander, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Prove to the court that I am sentient. The request when I got it said, we'd like you to do this if you don't mind, because we know this particular episode is very special to you. And so I had to write back and say, I, I will do this. I don't have a problem coming in and doing this, but I have to be transparent. I've never seen that episode. It, it's not that special to me because I've never seen it. I, I remembered making it to a, a degree. I certainly read it and acted in it. But that was 33 years ago, maybe something like that. Right. And so I said, I'm gonna have to come in early and watch the episode with the audience. So I have something to say. But what I do remember about that episode was that there is a conversation in it about creating a slave race of androids. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's what's to come. I don't know. How free is this Saudi Arabian android going to be? Or are they just being created to do work for us and stuff we don't want to do? Mm -hmm. Well, and we have a bias to not see them as having true sentience because it's easier on our conscience to let them. I mean, right now, our, our homes are filled with kind of low-level artificial intelligences that are turning our lights on and off and mm -hmm. re reminding us of our appointments and all that sort of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but that is... What we use them for is to do work we don't want to do. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. That gets really complicated because we also use people who come from other countries, people who come into our countries with nothing except hope to go on living. And if we allow them in and if we embrace them, we embrace them so that they can do the shitty work we don't want to do. And yeah. I don't know. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, mm. totally. Well, I mean, the vision of... The Star Trek future, mm -hmm. that sort of problem somehow gets solved. <laughs> yeah, it does to a degree. I don't know, though. I mean, I love Star Trek and I love what it has to say and I love its moral center. And I certainly know that Gene Roddenberry, who, you know, and I say this and everyone says it, he was a complicated guy because he was indeed a human, mm -hmm. but he had some really fine ideas. There's a moment in the book when those. Trek fans come up, I think it's at the funeral, mm -hmm. and 
the Brent Spiner character is tempted to laugh at them, Mm -hmm. but then has a moment of respect for the fact that they really appreciate Gene's vision and what Trek stands for. Exactly. What is Star Trek? Beyond it being a a show and a franchise, all that, like, what, what is the vision in your mind? Yes, it has all of these beautiful ideas in it. And at the same time, we're still blowing spaceships out of the sky and shooting with our phasers and doing Mm -hmm. violence. And so there's action adventure in it, but also his elevated thinking came into it as well. And I think where that lives is in inclusiveness. You know, I remember when we were auditioning for Next Generation, Patrick auditioned and one of the powers that be at Paramount Pictures at the time said to Gene, don't you think people will have cured baldness? And Gene's response was, don't you think it won't matter? Mm-hmm. And uh, people will have transcended enough that those kinds of physical things won't matter at all. And so there's so much in it that, that he laid the groundwork for of celebrating the differences in people rather than destroying them. Mm-hmm. And that's the strength of Star Trek, I think. And that's why I believe people are attracted to it. Also, I have this theory, and I'm sure other people have it as well, that we live in such a treacherous time. Everything is precarious. Our planet is precarious. When you see anything set in the future, there's something reassuring about it. We are not going to destroy ourselves. Hmm. We will go on for hundreds of years because there we are existing in the future Mm -hmm. and treating each other much better than we do right now. Actually, something we wanted to ask you about in relation to the past is that a lot of the book is backward looking in this deep way yeah. with a sort of reverence and respect, not just for old Hollywood, but also for the legacy of, of Star Trek and mm-hmm. for your own role in relation to this character data. And I know that Amanda often has these fears that how her life is defined by this thing that happened in the past and mm. it's, everything seems to be in relation or in reference to that thing moving on into the future. Right. Like how do you make a life looking forward while still feeling like you're anchored to this period that was really crucial in your past. Mm. What is that like for you in relation to the, the Star Trek years and, and this character of Data? How do you look forward and what does looking forward mean to you? It's easier for me, I think, than Amanda to embrace that past and say, it is what it is. It was nightmarish for you. But for me, it was a positive thing. It's like Al Pacino in Godfather 3. They keep dragging me back no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I've gotten okay with it now. I just have to let other people think of it the way they think of it. And I deal with it the way I do, which is it was a job Hmm. for me, frankly. It was a very, very good job certainly the best job I'll ever have. And I've had some good jobs along the way, but it's not the be all and end all. I still think about other things and I still do other jobs and I play other characters. And uh, I was trained to, to do as many different genres as possible and to play Shakespeare and Moliere and do musicals and do light comedies and do anything. And Star Trek has allowed me to do that too. Mm. I've played so many different versions of this android and his creators and the ancestors of his creators. Totally. And if I had to be stuck doing one thing all the time, it was, it was a pretty great thing to be stuck doing because obviously it was a good gig 
And because it allowed me to explore as many different facets of humanity as, as I possibly could. It's been 34 years since Brent Spiner first stepped into the role of Lieutenant Commander Data, and 55 years since Gene Roddenberry's vision first came to life with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy on the original Enterprise. Star Trek has become an institution, but has it changed? One of the things that we personally love a lot about The Next Generation is that many of the best episodes we think have that philosophical tone to them. Mm -hmm. And we're wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Has Trek evolved or what is the true heart of it? Or is it as much explosions as it is moral quandaries? Where is it for you? I think they're both still there and they were always there. It's just there's so much more expectation now for visual impact than there used to be. What I loved about the original series, just that it was colorful. There were colors that you never saw on any other TV show. There's not magenta on anything else. Right. Except Star Trek. And so those visuals were just fine. For that time, they were dazzling. Hmm. And then they got into our show and the the transporting and the explosions and the ships and everything had to be elevated a little bit more visually than they were at that time. And I think because things have become so much more sophisticated visually and what they're capable of doing with CGI and things like that, there's an expectation in a sci-fi show that it's going to pop visually. But I think underneath it all, the Star Trek philosophy is there. I know the guys who, who create it really care about that. I know the first season on Picard, those were Michael Chabon is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and a very, very bright guy. And really loves Star Trek. And Akiva Goldsman, who won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind, Mm -hmm. same thing. They loved Star Trek. And uh, Alex Kurtzman, they all love it. And I think their desire is to somehow house it in something that's more relatable to a current audience. That latest installment, Star Trek Picard, will likely be the last to feature the character of Data. Spiner has said he won't reprise the role again because it's just not realistic for him, as he ages, to continue playing an android who doesn't. It's a rare opportunity to be able to inhabit a role for decades, to evolve with a beloved character, becoming almost synonymous with that fictional entity. But time eventually forces a schism between character and actor, and it becomes more clear that they were never close to synonymous. Just as Spiner can exist without Data, so too can Data exist without Spiner. It makes me wonder about my own avatar, not just the false and vilified Foxy Noxy, but even the public-facing Amanda Knox I present to the world, the advocate against wrongful convictions, yada yada. Is that really me? Or are any of us really the selves we portray on social media? It's questions like those that make Spiner's book fan fiction so interesting and more than a pulpy thriller. Despite yourself, I think it got very meditative and serious at times. It is a wild ride, but I think you're doing some really interesting investigation into the nature of identity. And I think Um, lots of people are asking themselves questions about that as we exist more and more online and we we have ideas of ourselves that exist out there in the world that may or may not be a good reflection of who we are in the real world. They pinged really hard for me because of my kind of crazy experience, but I think that they're going to ping for a lot of people. Yeah. 
Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Thanks so much. And I, I hope you guys just have a wonderful experience as parents. That's a great journey. Yay. All on its own. Last question for you. Yeah. How does your skin feel now that you don't have to apply gold to it every day? <laughs> Who had it worse, you or Michael Dorn, in terms of a makeup chair? He would say he had it worse, but I think I really did. <laughs> because at the end of the day, he had a thing on his head and he had teeth and makeup. But he'd be out of there in 15 minutes or 10 minutes. Mm. And I, it would take me as long to get it off mm -hmm. as it did to put it on, if not longer. And I think I say in the book, it was never really off until I got <laughs> home and, and got the rest of it off in shower. But yeah. Yeah. So I was the last one there every night. Uh, well, All right. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure talking to you, too, and wish you all the best. All right. Thank all right, you, Brent. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Good to meet you both. Wow. Data's a nice guy. You mean Brent? No, Brent's a jerk. <laughs> but Brent Spiner sure is nice. I'm confused. Which Brent is the real Brent? Which Chris is the real Chris? Right now, I'm just a disembodied podcast mm -hmm. voice. <laughs> you know what Shakespeare said? All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their okay, entrances. Okay, what if I... Ow! You pinched me! Feeling real yet? Give me a break. I'm trying to live in unreality as long as I can. Because coming up next on Labyrinths, it's getting very real with our journey into parenthood. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And whether you're feeling real or unreal, please consider giving Labyrinths a five-star review. Despite our terrible acting. <laughs> <laughs> this What's acting? What's not acting? <laughs> this episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. When I click off the record button, just leave the window open for 30 seconds so that the audio can upload. All right. You know what? I'm, I, I'm just going to leave it open the rest of my life. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> okay. All right, just to good. be safe. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. coffee. So if you're enjoying Labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us. <laughs>